A lot of people really hate zero RB. Here's a tweet from Michael Fabiano. Who wants to take the NFL playoff challenge? Sign up here to compete against me. Can't go zero RB in this format. Why? Why, Michael? Why? We know you finished last in your work league, the NFL Network League that you're in with Aaron Coscarelli. She told us you were in last place, desperately trying to trade assets to turn your team around, and you failed. You were beaten by teams that implemented zero RB, and you're bitter, and you're lashing out. But you are not the only one. A lot of fantasy gamers and fantasy analysts are dancing with glee on what they believe to be the zero RB gravesite. Why? Because many zero RB enthusiasts like myself come across as if we think we're the smartest people in the room. The tone in which many of us talk about zero RB strategy is off-putting to many of you. And I understand that. We talk about zero RB with pretension. And I believe that's why so many are so eager to celebrate the fact that many zero RB teams did not win championships this year. And in fact, most of the teams, most of the fantasy teams that won championships in 2016 drafted either David Johnson or Ezekiel Elliott in the first round. And if they didn't draft Ezekiel Elliott or David Johnson in the first round, they most likely drafted Le'Veon Bell in the second round. Those three players were the league winners in 2016. But as we talked about last week, the fundamentals of zero RB haven't changed just because the top scoring players in fantasy football this year were all running backs. Particularly when you look at a metric like value over stream, playerprofiler.com's playerprofiler.com's version of value over replacement, you'll see top five players all running backs. The highest value over streams by a wide margin belong to David Johnson, Le'Veon Bell, and Ezekiel Elliott. So zero RB is now perceived to be a failure, and it's the question many fantasy analysts are grappling with on social media. Is zero RB dead? What is the future of zero RB? And as we've talked about for weeks, nothing that happened in 2016 would lead us to question the fundamentals of zero RB, and zero RB will be even more successful next year as, number one, more running backs are drafted with early round draft capital, and number two... The fantasy production of the various positions, quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, and tight ends, regresses back to their respective means. Data from the last 10 years tells us that running back production will likely decline in 2017, and wide receiver production will likely rise. So many now are looking back thinking, oh, zero RB was just silly. How could you zero RB zealots have fallen for such a flawed strategy? Resounding failure. Yet no one would be saying that if David Johnson had simply hurt his knee in week one of 2016 as opposed to week 17. Just change the week in which David Johnson is hurt and the perception of zero RB across the fantasy community shifts dramatically. We can go back a year earlier, Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon Bell injured his knee in late December and early January for two consecutive years. Serious knee injuries for Le'Veon Bell at the end of seasons. What if Le'Veon Bell had hurt his knee in September? Either year. Number one, the perception of Le'Veon Bell would be different in that Le'Veon Bell would be perceived to be more injury prone because he would have missed more games. And the perception of zero RB would be enhanced as well. If you just change the weeks in which David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell hurt their knee, no critics of zero RB would exist. And when that is the only twist of fate that is required 
to change the entire perception of a strategy, you realize most people are whimsical with their draft concepts, implementing whatever feels like the popular approach at the time without the conviction that comes from understanding the fundamentals of a strategy. That's how the popularity of Zero RB can shift so dramatically from 2016 to 2017. And just with those two hypotheticals concerning David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell's knees, the perception shifts wildly. But at least those whimsical drafters have a draft concept. At least they're going into the draft room with some kind of strategy. Because many experts simply recommend taking the best player available. Yes, just draft good players. It'll be fine. We've had experts on these airwaves say exactly that. You don't need a plan. No, you don't need a plan that helps you win on the margins. Just draft all the best players. Duh. And the best players now are perceived to be running backs. Just like in 2011, the best players were perceived to be quarterbacks. But as Kevin Cole from Rotoviz tweeted, follow him at Cole underscore Kev, like late round quarterback in 2011, sometimes trends reverse in the short term while continuing to maintain the same long term trajectory. The same fundamental shift is occurring in the NFL. The running back position is being de-emphasized and becoming more disposable. That is happening. And the graphs of most trends are not smooth. And the same is true for positional fantasy point output. It varies wildly year to year. Last year was best case scenario for running backs and worst case scenario for wide receivers. Do you believe that 2016 is the new norm and the trajectory has changed dramatically? Or do you believe we're on the same trajectory that we've been on for 10 years and that 2016 represented a peak and a valley for the running back and the wide receiver position respectively? I see no reason to believe that the long-term trend has changed. And another short-term trend of the National Football League is Geronimo Allison catching footballs. Yes. Last week, Geronimo Allison, four catches, 91 yards, and a touchdown. Geronimo! Yeah! Exciting young player. Yeah, right? 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 Jeff Janis, who? We have Geronimo Allison to play the number three wide receiver position. Field stretcher. Yeah. Wow. 24 yards per reception in week 17. Who needs Jeff Janis when you have Geronimo Allison, right? Right? Wrong. As we've seen with Devontae Adams, you don't need to be an elite wide receiver talent. In fact, you can be below replacement and still be an enormously productive fantasy football asset if you're logging heavy snaps with Aaron Rodgers at quarterback. As we've seen with Jordy Nelson this year, you don't need to be fast. As we've seen with Devontae Adams for three years, you don't need to have great hands. You just need Aaron Rodgers, the best quarterback of a generation, maybe of all time. Because when you look at Geronimo Allison's profile on playerprofiler.com, 6'3", 196, low BMI, well below average college dominator, 24.4%. So he was not accounting for a significant number of receiving yards and touchdowns at Illinois. Only a 13.9 yards per reception. That's Kevin White level mediocre. Late breakout age. And below the 50th percentile in every workout metric. 40 time, 467. If a 196 pound player runs a 467, That is the opposite of size-adjusted speed. Burst score, 119.6, also below the 50th percentile, and an 1168 agility score, 6th percentile. Gross. Just a reminder, Jeff Janis at 
63219 posted a 1062 agility score, 97th percentile. 1062 versus 1168. Jeff Janis's agility score was more than a second better than Geronimo Allison's. So in what world would anyone project Geronimo Allison to be a better NFL player than Jeff Janis? Well, Geronimo Allison had that four-catch, 90-yard week 17. Week 17, the favorite week for the no-name players to light up the box score. Jeff Janis nearly doubled Geronimo Allison's fantasy production in the Packers playoff game against the Arizona Cardinals last year. So I've seen a late round undrafted player come out of nowhere and look impressive with Aaron Rodgers. And his name's Jeff Janis. It's not Geronimo Allison because Jeff Janis did what Geronimo Allison did, but he did it better. He was more spectacular. And across the board, he has better metrics. Jeff Janis checks all the boxes. Geronimo Allison checks none. So the answer to all the buzzers that continue to ask me what I think of Geronimo Allison in Dynasty, the answer is nothing. I don't have one thought about Geronimo Allison. Not a neuron has fired in my brain regarding Geronimo Allison's dynasty stock since his Week 17 performance. I do not think that Geronimo Allison is worth a roster spot, even in the deepest dynasty leagues. And today's show is a highlight special. Over two hours of Roto Underworld Radio. Some of it's new, but a lot of it harkens back to the raging takeitude of 2016. We had hot takes, we had cold takes, we had good takes, we had bad takes, and the bad takes are the best takes. And here was my reaction to Jeff Janis's face-melting performance in the playoffs against the Arizona Cardinals, solidifying his position among the top 100 dynasty wide receivers. Jeff Janis is absolutely worth a spot on your dynasty roster. Geronimo Allison is not. Jeff Janis, Jeff Janis. Ah, yes, it happened. It's just, 
Still hard to believe. It hasn't quite sunken in yet that it happened. I woke up Sunday morning and I just felt a sense of relief. I went to bed Saturday night floating on my bed. When I woke up, I was sunken into the bed. All of my weight, all of my cares, all of my worries, all of my anxiety had drained out of me. And I laid there simply content, looking up at the ceiling, smiling, just feeling content, just <sighs> That was it. Felt so good. Shaking, shaking, shaking. What is this salty discharge? What is this? It was a religious experience, what happened to me on Saturday night. It was the closest thing to witnessing a miracle. <laughs> it's what it was. I was so my heart was just filled with gratitude for what was happening. Because you don't stop believing that this man is special, that he's the one. That he's the savior for your Dynasty League team. You just don't stop believing ever. No matter how many people make fun of him. No matter how many games Mike McCarthy refuses to play him because Mike McCarthy's a moron. No matter what happens, how dark it gets because the days were dark. They were so dark. So dark. It was so dark. And yet... I never lost faith. I never stopped believing that Jeff Janis is the answer. <laughs> that Jeff Janis is the answer. <laughs> that Jeff Janis is the answer. Um. Okay, so this is awkward. As it turns out, Jeff Janis might not be the answer. We don't know. All we know is that a man named Geronimo outsnapped him in week 17. I don't think Geronimo Allison is worth a roster spot any more than Jared Cook. Jared Cook, who last week came out with effusive praise of Aaron Rodgers and Aaron Rodgers' leadership skills in particular. Now, Jared Cook is not a good player. He's not hashtag good at football. He's hashtag bad at football. If you ask Jared Cook to catch a screen pass and roll up yards after the catch, he will catch the ball and fall down on first contact. If you ask Jared Cook to catch a seam pass, he will drop it. If you ask Jared Cook to block an edge defender, your quarterback will be sacked. And now Jared Cook is failing at providing truthful sound bites to the media. Aaron Rodgers is not a leader. Aaron Rodgers is wired the same way that Peyton Manning was, and Peyton Manning was not a leader either. Aaron Rodgers and Peyton Manning have perfected the art of deflecting blame from themselves onto their teammates and the officials with their on-field histrionics. Everybody was tired of Peyton Manning when he finally retired, and everybody, even Packer fans, are growing weary of Aaron Rodgers' on-field shtick. Screaming when a wide receiver doesn't make a play. Gesturing with his arm to show the crowd, to show the television audience, to show the announcers in the booth 
that it was the wide receiver who ran the wrong route. It was not Aaron Rodgers who made an inaccurate throw. No, 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 no. Aaron Rodgers could play Peyton Manning in a movie. He has perfected the art of acting like an entitled, petulant jerk, emasculating teammates rather than building them up, and pleading with officials after every incompletion for non-existent pass interference. So no, Aaron Rodgers is not a leader, and neither was Peyton Manning. And I was on record earlier this year criticizing Peyton Manning for the same behavior. Here's what I said about Peyton Manning a year ago. Something inside me still perceives Peyton Manning as unnatural, as entitled, as aristocratic. And there's just something ugly about that that I can't quite fully understand why I find that so off-putting. But I do. I think it's the same reason we rooted for the Charlie character in The Scent of a Woman. We rooted for the Charlie character and we despised the George character played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Here's Charlie! Facing the fire. There's George hiding in Big Daddy's pocket. And what are you going to do, Mr. Trask? You're going to reward George and you're going to destroy Charlie. Right? George is Peyton Manning in that situation. And Charlie is Drew Brees. But that's Peyton Manning. He's an entitled ego monster. He is. And it started when he was born. He was born into wealth and he was born into a family that expected him to be the next Archie Manning. The takes we're revisiting today all happened before week one. Next week's show, we will revisit in-season takes. But all the takes you're hearing today were given before the season started, including my opinion that Carson Wentz was overdrafted, that the Philadelphia Eagles gave up too much to trade up to draft Carson Wentz because Carson Wentz was an old prospect who played against inferior competition during his time at North Dakota State. And while at North Dakota State, Carson Wentz failed to post prolific stats and his accuracy issues throttled his efficiency. That's the guy you're going to trade a basket of valuable picks, including multiple first-round picks to acquire? Philadelphia's move up the draft board to get Carson Wentz exemplifies how bad franchises stay bad. That's exactly what's happening now with Carson Wentz. He looks the part. And then that confirmation bias leads to excuse making. Oh, well, he broke his wrist last year. That's why he's been slow in in getting up to speed in these drills. His pre-draft process hasn't been as good as some others, but remember, he broke his throwing wrist last year, so that's the excuse. That's the reason. Wait a second. He has a bad throwing wrist? Isn't that a red flag in and of itself? I mean, what? You're using a broken wrist as an excuse? That's supposed to make me feel better? (laughs) Oh, don't worry about that. He's damaged goods. Like, what? What? Excuse me? That's like a used car salesman going, well, this car doesn't always drive straight because it was in an accident last year. Like, excuse me? The greatest front office accident of 2016 had to be Brock Osweiler, who also happens to look exactly like Robert Pattison from the movie Twilight. Now, we'll lighten the conversation slightly by talking about Brock Osweiler. Now, I say lighten, but we all know that Brock Osweiler likes it dark because he is, in fact, a vampire. (laughs) I don't know where you come up with this. Well, he looks exactly like James Patterson from Twilight. Am I wrong? Oh, gosh. I never put that together. Uh, 
I, I, I was not a Twihard. So I guess, I guess. Is that I, the I name of people that love Twilight? Twihards? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've not read any of those books either because I, I actually like literature, though I did read uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, so I can't, I can't purport too much. I read it, loved it. <laughs> I read it on an airplane, actually, and then I was like, I have to stop reading this because I'm... <laughs> Were people looking over at you going, oh, she's, she, look, she's reading 50 Shades well, I was on a flight to Africa, and so it was a long flight, and I was like, I really have to stop. Like, I can't just sit here and schwitz. Like, I, I need to, like, read something else, so I, I switched gears. You were schwitzing? A little bit. I love yeah. it. That's great. So, Brock Osweiler... <laughs> Hanging upside down in a cave has a tattoo on his arm. Yeah. I think it's the arm in which he he hooks himself to the top of the, what is it, stalactite or a stalagmite? Which one is the them. ones on top? Uh, not a geologist, so not, not entirely sure. Rock Osweiler hangs himself to a stalagmite and or stalactite by one of his arms. It's probably the arm that has the tattoo on it. And it reads, live life to its fullest. However, it's is spelled I T apostrophe S. Well, I, I mean, maybe Brock Osweiler, I love the bad analogy, but I'm going to uh, veer slightly from it because he might be dumb like a fox because that fool just somehow convinced Houston that he was a good quarterback. And if you go back and watch his tape, which I sort of did in like a half-assed off-season way, admittedly, um, right. There is no other way. And, and it's like the sample size is not entirely large. Right. So there were moments that he was brilliant. And then there were moments that he nearly got uh, one of his receivers killed. So, you know, but but he's he, he's brand new. So so I feel like there's obviously there's a maturation process that's going to happen. And I'm also a little bit curious, though, had Brian Hoyer just not completely est the bed in the playoffs? You can say shit the bed. Oh, okay. Um, I, I'm just not, like, would he be so out? I guess he probably would have because the whole season in Houston started with him not as the starter, and, and they just needed to shore that up, win the locker room, win the team, and this is our guy. We're bringing him in from Denver, maybe via osmosis. He'll have some Peyton Manning-esque traits. We know he's very tall. Yeah, he happens yeah, to yeah. stare down defenders and receivers, so that's not great. But, you know, I also think if you're that tall, it's your eyes are so much easier to track, which gives him a bit of an obstacle there. But regardless, you have to imagine that DeAndre Hopkins is thrilled that there's no more, at least, questions under center. Well, at least Brian Hoyer had no problem pushing the ball downfield. He wasn't accurate. He's not a good yeah. deep ball thrower, but he was a willing passer. He liked to take shots. Brock Osweiler rarely does that. Yeah, but that might be a, a, a like a symptom of the system and them wanting to keep the reins tight and that defense being so good. I mean, there, I, I feel like mm, maybe that was a little bit of Kubiak saying, like, let's keep it close to the vest, trying to hide him because he didn't know what he had with him. Or maybe Brock Osweiler does, in fact, have a 25 wonderlick, which is is only 39th percentile, which may help to explain the tattoo. Yep, bringing it all full circle. I was waiting for that. All right. And yeah. his college QBR 
at best at Arizona State was only 70.2, which is below the 50th percentile. Yards per attempt in college, 7.8, 39th percentile. So if we go back and get a larger sample size in college, not an impressive prospect. Then at the professional level last season, he had the same yards per game and same touchdown to interception ratio as... Blaine Gabbert. And he's only one year younger than Blaine Gabbert. It's not like Blaine Gabbert is this old man and Brock Osweiler is this young developmental quarterback. No, Brock Osweiler is going to be 26 years old soon. And Denver did not aggressively try to re-sign him. So I am wondering if all these bad signs are pointing to a quarterback who's not actually an upgrade over Brian Hoyer. Yes, Brian Hoyer had an epic implosion in the playoffs, as did Andy Dalton a couple years earlier. But Brock Osweiler's first eight games in the league are a mirror image of Blaine Gabbert's eight games with San Francisco and Brian Hoyer's first eight games in the NFL with the Browns. So, uh, mm, I think it's bad quarterback musical chairs in Houston. Well, we we can definitely confirm that Bill O'Brien has a type. Because Ryan Mallett is certainly not being invited to Mensa. (laughs) That's it. Seems like just yesterday the Texans signed the biggest bust free agent quarterback in the history of the NFL. But it feels like forever ago that the mainstream football media shredded Cam Newton because they didn't like his attitude during a press conference after a loss. That happened. Play the clip. Cam Newton is frustrated. Cam Newton is perturbed, but he's not allowed to show it. Why? You must hide it. We are asking you to lie. Sit here and act in a way that conflicts with your true emotions. We want disingenuous behavior from our entertainers, and I don't understand why. Listen to the questions they ask Cam Newton. Do you sometimes forget that defenses can still take apart the offense in this game? That's the condescending question that Cam Newton is hit with 30 minutes after he takes his gear off, concluding the most devastating event of his career. So let me ask you, can you put into words the disappointment that you feel right now? No! Get out of here with that question! I know you're disappointed, not just for yourself, but for your teammates. It's going to be real tough, isn't it? (laughs) What? What? Turning the knife is what the reporters are doing to Cam Newton after the game. Less than an hour after his biggest professional failure. If I were in his shoes, maybe I would have the composure to answer those questions after a couple days had gone by, after I'd had a couple days to process it. But not 30 minutes after I took my equipment off. (laughs) That is inhuman. These press conferences that these players are asked to perform, particularly the losers... The defeated are asked to perform. These press conferences are cruel and demoralizing. The Players Association should make it a priority to remove the requirement from the losing player to attend a press conference after the game. In fact, all teams should encourage their players to not participate in these post-game press conferences because they are a farce. They are a coerced, inhuman farce. Did Cam Newton look like he wanted to be there? No. 
He was compelled to be there by a subjugating employer. I mean, I've had professional failures in my career that to me were huge failures. Nothing like losing the Super Bowl. Clearly, I'm not Cam Newton. But for me, I've had huge failures. I was a software salesman and I've had big software deals that I had committed that I told my boss were coming in. Software deals that were in my sales forecast and then suddenly fell through, fell between my fingers like a dropped interception. I would be on the phone with the prospect who I thought was soon to be a customer and have them go through all of the explanation and have them explain why they couldn't buy the software after all. How it would have to wait until next year. And I would poke and I would prod and I would try to save the deal. And I just couldn't save the deal. I couldn't save it. And I would slam the phone down. I would punch my monitor and I would be devastated. And the last thing in the world I would want to see are 30 reporters with microphones waiting outside my office. Or earlier when I was in a cubicle, imagine 30 reporters just popping up like gophers around my cubicle. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. Oh, hello, Matt. Hey, answer a few questions. Oh, hello, Matt. Answer a few questions about that loss. Oh, hello, Matt. Let me answer a few questions about how you failed. Oh, hello, Matt. How did that deal fall through? How do you feel right now about that deal falling through? Get the hell out of here. Get away from me. Get out of my cube. After Cam Newton, no quarterback receives more unnecessary, undeserved criticism than Kirk Cousins. And I vowed this offseason to give up the side bets. No more side bets with other fantasy experts, but I made one exception with Jake Seeley, where I bet on Kirk Cousins against Eli Manning. Podfather one, Jake Seeley zero. Play the clip. Kirk Cousins was number one in the league in completion percentage, and his offensive line gave up more hits, hurries, and sacks than every other other offensive line in the league other than the Seattle Seahawks, who had an abhorrent pass-blocking offensive line. One of the worst pass-blocking offensive lines in the history of the NFL was the Seattle Seahawks this past year. Fine run-blocking, awful pass-blocking. Washington was next in line in terms of awful, putrid pass blocking this year. So if you think about it, he had a horrible pass blocking offensive line and he was still able to complete 70% of his throws in the NFL for a full season. All I would ask anyone who doesn't like Kirk Cousins is to ask why. Yeah. Why don't you like him? What about him? I just think for some reason there's some residual draft Twitter hate that's based on the fact that people don't like his face. They don't like the fact that he looks like a squad leader on Team America. There's just <laughs> something about him that people don't like. They just look at Kirk Cousins. For some reason, he has one of those faces. I know. I have one of those faces myself. I have a douchey face. And Kirk Cousins has a douchey face. I've lived my whole life with a douchey face. Anytime a stranger comes up to me and meets me for the first time, they always reflexively have a scowl because there's just something about me that just inspires dislike before I've even spoken. You're a Bortles and Manning hater. That's all I'm going to say. I'm a realist. 
No. If you're a realist, like everybody else should be, you would realize that Eli Manning is a top 10 quarterback. I think their defense and their run game is destined to improve. It can't be as bad as it was last year. And I don't know if you've heard, but Odell Beckham Jr. is dating a Kardashian. So I'm thinking about yes, but lowering Eli Manning in my rankings because of it. No, no, no. He was seventh last year. And you got to admit, you just said as bad. You got to admit that Sterling Shepard and the rest of the receivers aren't as bad as the Reuben Randall and other mess that they had last year. I have Eli Manning outside the top 12 because the NFL as a whole is going to set records offensively and that most of these players will either meet last year's fantasy output or will exceed it. So when you take a player like Joe Flacco, I think he's going to set a career high in fantasy points per game. Same with Marcus Mariota, same with Jameis Winston. And players like Eli Manning, who merely remain the same, will fall from fringe QB1 status to mid QB2 status. Are we going to put the friendly dollar bet? Is that what we're going to do? I got to mail you a dollar? This is why we have show sheets. So as the host, I can't be ambushed by someone calling out a player out of nowhere, even though I'm not prepared to talk about him at all. It would be nice to have a debate with someone and, ha and to have that person list their top 40 quarterbacks and then cherry pick the one quarterback or the one wide receiver or the one running back in which you most strongly disagree. I would love to do that. I would love to go on every single podcast that's available on iTunes. There's approximately 756 fantasy football podcasts available on iTunes. I'm not sure if you knew that, Jake Seeley. I would love to go through that arbitrage exercise and find the player that I most strongly disagree with every expert on and lay that wager with them on their podcast. That's not going to happen. That's not real life. That's not how this works. The show is called The Football Diehard Show with Matt Kelly. And you're not going to take the steering wheel and do some side bet for some irrelevant amount of money. A dollar? Eli Manning is not Versus a show sheet. And he's not going to have the same game flow propelling his volume in 2016. It's not going to happen. He's not going to be a QB1 in fantasy. Many of these other young QBs are ascending, and they will pass him on a fantasy points per game basis and relegate him to QB2 status. That is going to happen. If you want to place a bet about whether or not Eli Manning will be a QB1 versus a QB2, I'm willing to take that bet, but I'm not going to do money. I don't do money bets. If you want to do a prop bet with me where we do something fun and interesting, we can bring that up to the audience. You can contact the show at DieHardsPod on Twitter. Email us DieHardsPod at DieHardsPod at gmail.com. <laughs> I have let someone take over my Twitter account. I've changed my name on Twitter to whatever that person wanted me to change it to. I've changed my avatar to whatever that person wanted me to change it to. I've agreed to a whole slew of creative side bets, and I'm absolutely willing to do that with you about about this Eli Manning situation, QB1 versus QB2. Are you in for that? I just, I would do Eli Manning versus Cousins. I would make that nice and pretty for you. I think that's even better. They're both in the NFC East. Now I'm excited. Now I'm actually happy you took the steering wheel. This is one of those situations <laughs> where normally I'm, I'm very territorial about where this show goes, but this is the one case where I'm happy that you took the steering wheel. I can't wait to see the look on your face when your avatar becomes... Poop. Kirk Cousins? No, let's figure it out on air. Let's do it on air. We're going to do Kirk Cousins against Eli Manning. What are the stakes? Uh, that's, I thought it was pretty simple. I thought I could put his douchey face as my avatar and you could put Eli Manning's as your avatar for a day. Just a day? I can't do it. Look, I got restrictions of what I can do here, man. Can we put at least a little, what is it, like a thought bubble?
bubble next to their face that says something like Jake Seeley is a genius or Matt Kelly is a genius, something like that. And a little thought bubble. Can we do that? You could probably get away with something like that, I think. That's it. Those are the stakes. Diehards, pod, audience, you've heard it here. That's the bet. I can't believe I got suckered into one of these side bets. I told myself I wasn't going to do this again. I wasn't going to get sucked into this comparing where you have this guy rated and, oh, let's do a bet on this. You know, I'd rather just pull my pants down and let's just show our penises. Why don't we just do that next time? See, but I gave you the better side of it. Mine was it, like it was honestly pretty easy to start with. I was just calling him a QB one, but now I put him in a head-to-head with Cousins. So I think I, I think I gave you a little bit more room. Eli Manning to me is a lock as a QB one. If there is a quarterback who I am looking for an opportunity to fly a flag for, a douche-faced flag for, it would absolutely be. Kirk Cousins. They have to play at least eight games and we'll go fantasy points per game. How about that? Okay. Fair? That's fair. Good. Now I know what you're thinking. We get it. You had a lot of great takes in 2016. What about the bad ones? All right. Here you go. The Seahawks were near the bottom of the league in pass attempts, and yet Russell Wilson still finished the year with 21.9 fantasy points per game. How is that possible? It's possible because unlike Philip Rivers, Russell Wilson was exceptionally efficient. Plus 27.9 production premium, the situation agnostic efficiency metric on playerprofiler.com. Number one in the league. Number one in passer rating. Number four in total QBR. Number two in yards per attempt. Number five in air yards per attempt. And because he's a running quarterback, he was number two in fantasy points per drop back behind only Cam Newton. But when you look at this profile, it's almost a riddle. How did Russell Wilson finish in the top three without huge volume and only scoring one rushing touchdown? If I told you that the Seahawks were going to throw the ball 534 times and that Russell Wilson would only score one touchdown, I asked you before the season in 2015, how would it be possible weave a fictional scenario in which Russell Wilson finishes in the top three fantasy points per game, you couldn't do it. It would be an impossible conundrum. And this is all, by the way, with the worst pass-blocking offensive line. But I do have an answer to this conundrum. And the solution is right in front of our faces. That Russell Wilson could be the best quarterback in the history of the NFL. If you look at Russell Wilson's 2014 rushing numbers... 116 carries was number one in the league. 20 red zone carries, number one in the league. And because he had 116 carries with a healthy Marshawn Lynch, he was able to post 846 yards rushing, over 50 yards rushing per game, and six rushing touchdowns. Now in 2015, he has top five efficiency across the board, number one in multiple efficiency metrics. So we've laid out his age 25 season in which he scored six rushing touchdowns, his age 26 season in which he threw for more than 4,000 yards and was the most efficient quarterback in the league as a thrower. What happens if circumstances converge in 2016 to meld those two aspects of Russell Wilson's capabilities? No more Marshawn Lynch. So they don't have a running back they can trust. Without a running back they can trust, their run-first philosophy dissipates. And it makes sense that their run-first philosophy would dissipate because in the second half of last season, Russell Wilson started to throw the ball more. Week 8 against Dallas, 30 attempts. Arizona, 33 attempts. San Francisco, 29 attempts. Then 30, 27, 32, 30, 41 attempts against St. Louis, 28 attempts against Arizona. 
So in the past, Russell Wilson would go consecutive games throwing the ball less than 25 times. Now in the second half last season, he's throwing it 30 or more times in consecutive games, and in some games throwing it more than 40 times. Those are all the games in which they needed to throw in order to win. When they were losing to St. Louis, they had to throw. When they were losing to Pittsburgh, they had to throw. In only 30 attempts against Pittsburgh in Week 12, Russell Wilson threw for 345 yards and five touchdowns. 35 fantasy points per game. If the Seahawks merely shift their offensive philosophy incrementally and throw five to ten more times per game while simultaneously relying on Russell Wilson to run for first downs and touchdowns in a handful of situations in which they would have relied on Marshawn Lynch, all of a sudden Russell Wilson's weekly floor is 25 points per game and his weekly ceiling is 35 points a game. Russell Wilson becomes a 30 points per game fantasy quarterback, the best fantasy quarterback of all time. That is in Russell Wilson's range of outcomes in 2016. I predicted Russell Wilson was poised to post the greatest fantasy season of all time. (laughs) Never mind. Let's go back to me being right. most overrated fantasy player right now is Todd Gurley. Whereas Emmanuel Sanders is more underrated in a dynasty context, Todd Gurley is more overrated in a redraft context. Because I get that young fantasy RB1s in dynasty come at a super premium. That makes sense. It's more understandable. But in redraft, Todd Gurley is definitely the most overrated skill position player, period. Todd Gurley in 2015 had 11 runs of 20 plus yards or more. To put that in context, Lamar Miller only had seven, and Lamar Miller specializes in long runs. Now, think about all the forces working against Todd Gurley heading into 2016. Rookie quarterback, and with that, league-bottom offensive volume and efficiency, a below-average run-blocking offensive line, a team that has very few draft picks this year to improve the offensive line. Todd Gurley's production last season was propped up by long touchdowns. Remember, that's why Tevin Coleman was overrated coming out of Indiana last year. Remember? Long touchdowns, bad. Short touchdowns, good. Long touchdowns, bad. Short touchdowns, good. Remember that? But that doesn't apply to Todd Gurley? No? Okay. Yeah, Todd Gurley finished outside the top 15 in red zone carries last year. That's a problem. Scored 10 TDs on 30 red zone carries. Based on probabilities, he's not going to do that again this year. A bad offense, a bad offensive line, and bad running back game flow. All working against Todd Gurley in 2016. The game flow is interesting. There's only a handful of teams that you know will be playing from behind a lot next season. San Francisco, Los Angeles, Miami, Cleveland. There are a few teams that you can discount the running backs, particularly the running backs that aren't overly active in the passing game, and that's another problem with Todd Gurley. He only averaged 1.6 receptions per game last season, so he's a hugely athletic yet touchdown-dependent running back on an offense that is going to be in game situations that will necessitate passing, not running. So all the external factors are stacked up against Todd Gurley. So what's left? The mystique. That's all we have to go on now. Mystique. The mythology. The brand. When all a running back has to stand on is his ability and his brand, and he's being drafted in the first round, stay away. Yes, yes, yes. The definitive fantasy advice. Stay away from Todd Gurley. Boom! 
I will tell you high level that I think Ezekiel Elliott is one of the best prospects we've ever seen. Potentially the best prospect since Ladanian Tomlinson. Super young, prototypical size, back-to-back 1,800 rushing yard seasons. That national championship run, he was the best player on the field the whole time. He just has everything. Beyond. It's amazing. Great abs also. Yes, he's always exposing those, so. He has better abs than Gurley. Can confirm. I'll confirm that. So I think once you factor the abs in, can we just say with the abs that Zeke Elliott is a small notch ahead of Todd Gurley in terms of all-time college football prospects? Prolific rushing and receiving numbers back-to-back seasons. So you have the consistency, and he's winning in all phases. He's Mm -hmm. scoring the ball. He's catching the ball. He's rushing the ball up the middle, on the outside. I have to go back to LaDainian Tomlinson to find a better all-around running back. Personally, I think they're all right there. You know what I mean? Did I mention the abs? <laughs> oh. So looking at first-round running backs, we've loved David Johnson for years, loved Ezekiel Elliott, wanted nothing to do with Todd Gurley. What about Lamar Miller? The only running back ahead of him on the depth chart is a fake bell cow in Lamar Miller. Cool. That's uh, that's hot. That's hot, Matt. I mean, I like I like Lamar Miller, um, but I definitely think that he's just admitted he's a fake bell cow. He's a fake bell cow. Is there's something to the fact that they drafted uh, Tyler Irvin after signing Lamar Miller? I think it says that they might not give him the Arian Foster esque workload uh, that we saw in Houston over the last couple of years. He's not going to get that workload because he's a fraud. And I always think, wow, how are these experts ranking Lamar Miller in their top three dynasty running backs? You see this often now. It's the new thing. It's trendy. It's hip. It's cool. Get Lamar Miller in your top three. And I'm sitting here going, he's not this guy. He is like Leo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can. He's not actually a pilot. Yes, he's a running back, but... He can't handle a full workload. He can't fly the plane by himself. He's a fraud. Okay, we were staying away from Todd Gurley. We were staying away from Lamar Miller. Were those two the most overrated running backs in Dynasty Leagues last year? Oh, no. Oh, no. The most overdrafted running back in Dynasty startups in 2016 was... Scouts from 32 teams, including the Seahawks themselves, all missed on Thomas Rawls. Thomas Rawls, whose dynasty stock is skyrocketing. Thomas Rawls' dynasty value has become a fireworks display in the sky. Oh, say can you see by Rawls' overvaluation. (laughs) Rawls is already untouchable in dynasty which is perplexing to me because he's not a sure thing. He's the farthest thing from a sure thing of any of the top 10 running backs in Dynasty since Andre Ellington. So yeah, I'm tempering enthusiasm on Thomas Rawls. The enthusiasm around Thomas Rawls is supported by only four starts at the NFL level. That's peculiar. Week 5 against Cincinnati, 169 yards and a touchdown. Week 11, San Francisco, 255 yards and two touchdowns. Pittsburgh, 81 yards and a touchdown. Minnesota, 123 yards and a touchdown. Then he was injured against Baltimore. Four full games as a starter for Thomas Rawls. Four total games on his resume that we can go back and analyze. Four! 
That has to be an all-time low for a top 10 dynasty running back, especially one that was an undrafted free agent. If a running back is in the top 10 with only four starts on his professional resume, the first thing I think is, well, he must have been an epic college producer. He must have been an elite athlete, a highly graded prospect coming out of college. But Thomas Rawls wasn't that either. Has anyone checked out Thomas Rawls' actual college stats? They weren't very good. At Central Michigan, 1,103 yards and 10 touchdowns. He did that in only nine games. So if you extrapolate it, he had a 32.35, 68th percentile college dominator rating on playerprofiler.com. That's above average. Sure, yeah. But when you factor in the fact that he did it against Central Michigan competition, then a 32% college dominator rating is exactly average. When you factor in the fact that he did it at Central Michigan. To put it in context, look at a player like David Johnson from the same draft class, also from a small school in the Midwest, Northern Iowa. David Johnson's dominator rating was 40.8. Why is that? Because David Johnson's a fantastic receiver. That bolstered his dominator rating. Thomas Rawls is not. His final season at Central Michigan, Thomas Rawls couldn't eclipse 100 receiving yards. He also couldn't eclipse 100 receiving yards in Seattle last year. Thomas Rawls is a between-the-tackles grinder who is being valued as a bell cow. And even that would be understandable if Thomas Rawls was a superior athlete, but he isn't. At 215 pounds, he ran a 4.58. That's a 97.7 speed score. That's 49th percentile. His burst score, 118.4, 42nd percentile. His agility score, 11.47, 30th percentile. We're just going down, 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 down the percentile ranks, all the way down to his bench press, 15 reps of 225, 7th percentile. His best comparable player on playerprofile.com is Dan Heron. Dan Heron does not fit the profile of an every-down NFL workhorse, and neither does Thomas Rawls. After last year, you would have thought that overvaluing video game stats in a small sample size would be discounted after all the lessons we learned last year. You would have thought. Remember Jeremy Hill? Remember C.J. Anderson? Remember Isaiah Crowell? But now a running back who had half the number of rushing yards that other running backs in his draft class like Tevin Coleman and Melvin Gordon posted is now in the top 10 dynasty running backs. And when I say top 10, I'm saying consensus. When you look at dynasty experts across the board, almost all of them have Thomas Rawls in their top 10. I am the lone holdout. I do not have Thomas Rawls in my top 10. Raising my hand. I'm guilty, Your Honor. I'm sorry. I am not overrating Thomas Rawls like everybody else. Guilty. Throw me in the clink. Because everyone now has Thomas Rawls ranked ahead of Melvin Gordon, ahead of Tevin Coleman. Despite the fact that those two running backs dominated Thomas Rawls' production in college. You might say, well, that's a long time ago. College was 2014. It's 2016 now. We've seen what Thomas Rawls can do at the professional level. Have we really? His one huge game came against San Francisco, who had the worst rush defense in the league. And he had a handful of other 100-yard performances. But so did C.J. Anderson in 2014. And? 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 Between the tackles, grinders are capable of having huge games. Look at 2014 in New England. If you overlaid Jonas Gray and LeGarrette Blunt's 2014 game log, you would have Thomas Rawls on steroids. Jonas Gray had 200 yards and four touchdowns in one game. That's the equivalent of what Thomas Rawls did against San Francisco.
So how did scouts miss this Thomas Rawls? Well, who's to say they actually missed him? But we weren't right about every player. We were wrong about Jay Ajayi. In May, before Arian Foster signed with the Dolphins, we believed that Kenyon Drake had more PPR value than Jay Ajayi. Just listen. Ajayi has degenerative knee problems, so he, you don't know how long he's going to last. I was never impressed with Ajayi as a, as a prospect, and I don't think he did anything last year as a pro to change my tune. When a team takes a player like Drake that early, it's not that I think Drake is a great prospect either. I think that was way early for him, but I do think that a, a running back taken in the top three rounds tends to get a lot of opportunity. It's hard for me to see a guy that's 6'1", 210, becoming a workhorse back. I don't think between the tackles running is in Kenyon Drake's future, but that doesn't mean he can't be on the field for at least 60% of the snaps in all passing situations and be a Shane Vereen type player in the NFL. And if he is going to do that, that means at the very least, Jay Ajayi is marginalized to between the tackles clock grinding, which I think is where he's best utilized anyway, but that's still not what his dynasty owners are hoping from him moving forward. Right. Ajayi is kind of a guy who likes to bounce it outside, too. So I'm not sure he's understanding that that would be the best role for him. Now, that guy, that guy, Jay, he's Jay just a guy. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right? That, right? Do you have a book of puns or? But my opinion of Jay Ajayi wasn't the wrongest. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. The wrongest of the wrong opinion of 2016 that Jeremy Lankford has nothing, nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing to worry about. That Jordan Matthews is not a threat to his role as the primary running back for the Chicago Bears. <laughs> just listen, just listen. And the Chicago Bears told you in limited snaps last season as the primary backup to Matt Forte getting a handful of starts when Matt Forte was out, what they saw from Jeremy Langford was enough to trust him with the primary running back job. And you know that because they didn't draft a running back in the draft until the fifth round. And what they drafted was Jordan Howard and between the tackles grinder. So Get out of here with this talk about Jeremy Langford not being a good football player. You go back to Michigan State, it's clear he was a good football player. You put on the tape from last season in Chicago, he was a good football player against San Diego when he scored 23.2 fantasy points. Ask the quality St. Louis defense, the one he hung 37.2 fantasy points on. Oh, one of them was a long run, though. You got to take away that long run. Who the hell's taking away the long runs? Is anyone taking away any of Todd Gurley's long runs? No! You like Jeremy Lankford because his 4-4-2-40 tells you he's super fast, especially for his size, and he's capable of long runs. That's why you like him in the first place. Go ahead, Nathan. <laughs> Okie doke. So the fantasy world's opinion on Jeremy Linkford is wrong. Often, it, it is the think missing the forest for the trees is wrong. The thinking on Linkford confused me because his cons are the opposite of another much hated running back in the industry, Derrick Henry. We hate Jeremy Lankford because he can't run between the tackles and because he's only a receiving back. But then when we talk about Derrick Henry, 
we hate him because he only caught so many passes at Alabama and he's a you know between the tackles grinder. So we can't have it both ways. Either we hate the receiving back or we love the receiving back. Jeremy Lankford is a good, very good receiving back and is going to be very heavily involved in the passing game as well as be the number one running back in the rush offense. I don't understand why you don't have Jeremy Lankford. Oh, but Nathan, oh, but Nathan, Nathan, no, 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 no. He only had a 52.4% catch rate. That was near league bottom. He's not a good receiver. His catch rate on a very small number of targets, less than 50, an incredibly small sample size in the grand scheme of gauging running back talent, was low. So I'm going to rush to a snap judgment and say that because in a handful of games as a starter and a handful of other games as a backup, Jeremy Lankford posted a 52% catch rate. That's all I need to know to tell me he's not a good receiver. Even though, even though he demonstrated true slickness and efficiency in the passing game at Michigan State. That didn't count, Nathan. That was college football. We don't look at college football. College football is not even football. College football might as well be another sport. I don't care about Jeremy Langford's touchdowns at Michigan State. I don't care about his activity in the passing game at Michigan State. Uh, he has a bad yards per carry and a bad catch rate in a small sample size, posted predominantly while playing a backup role as a rookie, a rookie in the NFL, the most challenging season for any player, their rookie year. Uh, don't talk to me about what he did at Michigan State. I want to look at the small sample size. I want to rush to a snap judgment. Even though the data set isn't significant enough, I don't care. I want to rush out and hate Jeremy Langford. Just like I want to rush out and hate Derrick Henry. Why? Because they're not Le'Veon Bell. If you're not Le'Veon Bell, I don't like you. The only way I like a running back is if his college dominator is above the 90th percentile and his size-adjusted agility is the best we've ever seen. And his name is Le'Veon Bell. And he posted over 23 fantasy points per game in 2014. Unless you're that running back, I don't like you. That's the standard I'm setting. Either you're Le'Veon Bell or I'm not interested in you. And the Bears, they showed us that they do like Jeremy Langford because they didn't bring anybody in. They like him a lot. Yeah. They didn't bring anyone in in free agency, and they didn't pick Jordan Howard until the fifth round. If you're worried about Jeremy Langford. Jordan Howard. Yeah. If you're worried about. Get out of here with Jordan Howard. Oh, good word about Jordan Howard. He's a sleeper to become the starting running back in week one for the Bears. If not by week one, well, Jeremy Langford is sure to face plant in the first couple of weeks, and Jordan Howard will be the starter in the second half. You can book that. Based on what? Well, I. Well, let's see. Jordan Howard, 20th percentile Spark X score, not a great athlete, caught almost no passes in his time at Indiana and wasn't a prolific rusher like Tevin Coleman was at Indiana. So he's not as good between the tackles as Tevin Coleman, and he's even worse than Tevin Coleman in the passing game. And he's not a fraction of the athlete that Tevin Coleman, Tevin Coleman, who's currently a backup in the NFL. Go ahead. Tell me about Jordan Howard, though. Tell me more about Jordan Howard, Nathan. What do you think about Jordan Howard? I'm excited to hear about him. Give me something positive. Go ahead. The positive is that he is behind a guy who... Ha Fuck Jordan Howard. I don't want to hear anything about Jordan Howard. Tell me about Jordan Howard. Tell me about him. He's a backup who his starter hasn't proven himself in the running game yet. So there's a chance that if Lankford busts in the running game... 
that Jordan Howard becomes. What does Jordan Howard do well again? I, I forgot. Tell me. Refresh my memory. Why is he good? Because he got drafted and he runs. He, he's not involved in the passing game, so he must be good. He runs. He runs. That's it. The official answer to the question, what's Jordan Howard's positive trait is, he runs. I love that. That's it. That's it. He runs. We should just oh, no. remove make all it stop. the stats on playerprofile.com. May someone make this analysis stop. That's it. Yeah, there's nothing to like on his profile. He's actually less productive and less nifty than Carlos Hyde, and he's not as good of a receiver as Carlos Hyde. And Carlos Hyde's not even a good receiver! But I need to be worried about Jordan Howard. I need to draft Jordan Howard as my handcuff to Jeremy Langford because Jeremy Langford's not a good football player. He's not. Terrible. There was a handful of games in which Jeremy Langford started. In a couple of them, the ones he wasn't scoring, 37 fantasy points in. He was relatively inefficient. That's a big deal, Nathan. That's all I need to know to judge Jeremy Langford. Is he good or is he bad? The answer is he's bad. No, he's not bad. He's actually good. Jordan Howard is bad. Now, 2016 was more than just a year of bad takes for Matt Kelly, including the worst possible take imaginable for a fantasy football analyst, stating in no uncertain terms that Jordan Howard is not a threat to Jeremy Langford. But looking beyond fantasy, 2016 was a tragic year. So many celebrity deaths in 2016. It was staggering. Musicians in particular, George Michael, Prince, and David Bowie, and many more were lost in 2016. And we happened to talk about David Bowie and how he collaborated with Freddie Mercury to record Under Pressure. Here it is. David Bowie was recording Under Pressure with Freddie Mercury. And at the time, at that time in rock, there was more creative energy. It was less corporate. And so they had an idea. They said, here's what we're going to do for this song. Crazy idea. We have two studios in this building. So we're going to put David Bowie in one studio and we're going to put Freddie Mercury in the other studio. We have the track laid down. We just need the vocals. We don't have lyrics. We just have the track with no vocals. So we want both Freddie Mercury and David Bowie to sit in a studio, let the music wash over them, and then stream of consciousness, just start riffing and then put the tracks together. See what happens. Just a crazy idea. No one had ever thought to do that before. And I don't think anyone's thought to do that since, but they did it this one time that Freddie Mercury and David Bowie got together. And so they go off to their separate studios. And these two guys are very different artists. Freddie Mercury, he is more extemporaneous. So he can listen to the music and just start riffing. That's not David Bowie's process. David Bowie is more of a thoughtful synthesizer. He's cerebral. He needs to be inspired by something, whether it's a fairy tale, whether it's the moon landing, and then build on that to make his art. That's how David Bowie goes about it. But he agreed to do it because it sounded fun. So in one studio, you have Freddie Mercury just riffing and doing his thing, just riffing on on top of the track. And it was great. And then in the other studio, you have David Bowie just sitting there staring at the wall, saying nothing. He had what is essentially writer's block for a musician. Just complete brain lock. And he was contemplating, he was contemplating. Eventually, the engineer turned the music off. The engineer started fiddling with the dials. And David Bowie started thinking. He started thinking, what is Freddie doing? I wonder what Freddie's doing. Where's Freddie? So he looked up and no one was paying attention to him. He sneaks out of his studio, walks down the hall, 
and then creeps up next to the door of Freddie Mercury's studio and he puts his ear to the door and he starts listening to Freddie Mercury do Under Pressure. And he hears Freddie Mercury in his soundproof room going, And he's like, what is this? What are you doing, Freddie? But then he started letting it wash over him, started synthesizing what Freddie was doing. And then he ran back or scooted back or slithered back to his studio. And he was inspired. And he laid it down. There's a chair of knowing what this world is about. Boom! And then the producer put the two vocals together and couldn't believe how well they meshed. Because of course, David Bowie cheated. He cheated to make magic. Brilliant. And speaking of brilliance, I projected Brandon Cooks to finish among the top 10 wide receivers in 2016, and he did exactly that. Brandon Cooks was the DeAndre Hopkins of 2016. Remember last year, everyone talking about Brandon Cooks and how Brandon Cooks had a low A dot average depth of target, and that was a huge concern for Brandon Cooks' future, that Brandon Cooks could only run short routes, that Brandon Cooks could only succeed close to the line of scrimmage because of this A dot statistic. As it turns out, as a rookie, the Saints chose to call plays for Brandon Cooks where he was running close to the line of scrimmage, slant plays, screen passes. Did that get the most out of what Brandon Cooks offers? No, clearly not, because now Brandon Cooks is running different plays. Brandon Cooks is getting more out of his talent. That's why when I heard this concern about Brandon Cooks's A dot, it was laughable because I went to playerprofiler.com and I looked up Brandon Cooks and I found out, oh, oh, okay, so, hmm, interesting. Brandon Cooks has a 43340. <laughs> What? Brandon Cooks broke out at 18.9 years old, 90th percentile. Brandon Cooks posted a 38.9 college dominator rating, which is 73rd percentile in a major conference, the Pac-10, Oregon State. You do not post a 38.9% college dominator rating at a major conference by running plays exclusively out of the slot. That's just not possible. Just think it through. Think critically. This is what's maddening to me. All of these analysts copy and pasting analysis without thinking about it. Think critically. Does it make sense that a player with Jordan Matthews' profile should be categorized as a slot receiver? Of course not. Does it make sense to say that Brandon Cooks is a close-to-the-line-of-scrimmage specialist? I mean, when you look at the profile and you see his 40 time and his burst and agility his catch radius, all his workout metrics above the 50th percentile. And you say, wow, this is a super productive college player who's also one of the incredible athletes at the position. And you're telling me that he's the next Lance Moore? Are you insane? Who would think that? Well, the answer is a lot of people thought that. Just like a lot of people thought that Kevin White was a more valuable dynasty asset than Brandon Cooks. Just six Months ago. <laughs> who else in that draft class could ascend? Well, who was drafted after Amari Cooper? Oh, Kevin White. Then Kevin White's next in line to ascend, right? Er, wrong. Need a family feud sound effect on that one.
The question posed to Die Hard's pod was, why are you so low on Kevin White? And you can check out my rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings to see where I have Kevin White ranked. In redraft, I have Kevin White ranked number 50, which is lower than most, but it isn't the lowest of the low. In Dynasty, I have him ranked at the lowest of the low point. No one has Kevin White ranked as low as I do in Dynasty. I have him ranked number 46. I have him ranked below Philip Dorsett and Devin Funchess from this draft class. I have him ranked below Stephon Diggs, Doyle Green-Beckham, Devin Funchess, and Philip Dorsett in this draft class. Why is that? Because Kevin White has a multitude of red flags on his profile. At first glance, when you go to playerprofile.com, you see the athleticism. A receiver standing 6'3", weighing 215 pounds, running a 4'3'5". Whoa! Whoa! A stunning 123.4 height-adjusted speed score. (laughs) Wow! Wow! Well above average burst, well above average agility. He even showed great agility, which means his catch radius is 1026, 91st percentile. His Spark X score, because he's also strong, is 135.1, 99th percentile. If we were evaluating wide receivers based on athleticism alone, Kevin White would be bust-proof. A lock to be a fantasy viable asset in his first year playing professional football. But this is his first year playing professional football at age 24. There are almost no comps for a player this old being productive in his first year playing professional football. We had Evan Silva on the program. He found one productive wide receiver fitting that criteria. The Green Bay Packers' Robert Ferguson. And Robert Ferguson was younger, and he was never a WR1 in fantasy. So the idea that Kevin White has this attainable mythical ceiling is fiction, because that's exactly what a myth is. It's fiction. Kevin White was drafted based on the mystique of his size and athleticism. The Chicago Bears were chasing size-adjusted athleticism ghosts, just like fantasy footballers love to chase size-adjusted athleticism. But when you look at his profile on playerprofiler.com more closely, you start to see more red flags. It's not just that he missed his rookie season and he will be a very old de facto rookie. It's that his 36.8% dominator rating, 70th percentile, was fueled by huge volume because he has a 70th percentile college dominator paired with a 30th percentile yards per reception. So even though he has a 123.4 height-adjusted speed score, he was operating close to the line of scrimmage. Why is that? Because perhaps he's not a polished receiver. Perhaps he doesn't understand the nuances of the position that would allow him to gain leverage on defenders and make plays on the outside. I don't know. But the biggest red flag of all is that as a junior at West Virginia with these measurables, a 21-year-old junior, he didn't dominate, couldn't reach 30 receptions. As one of the most athletic wide receivers in college football at the time, at age 21, he couldn't reach 40 receptions. They didn't use him. I don't know why they didn't use him more his junior year. I don't know why he's one of the oldest wide receivers to break out in the history of college football, but that happened. 
And breakout age is a significant indicator of wide receiver success at the next level. And then he went out and missed his rookie year. And he's clearly behind a top 10 talent at the position in Alshon Jeffrey. It's not like Kevin White landed on the Browns depth chart. If he did, and he was sitting in Corey Coleman's chair, I would like him a lot more. But at best, he's number two on the target totem pole of the Bears offense. And Jay Cutler finished near the bottom of the league last year in pass attempts because John Fox and his staff realized the best way to avoid Jay Cutler turnovers is to rely on Jay Cutler less. So let me get this straight. Kevin White is at best the number two receiver on a low volume offense with an inefficient quarterback. And he's never played a down in the NFL at age 24 with one of the latest breakout ages of any wide receiver we've ever seen. That's the guy I'm supposed to be excited about? Now, everybody knows that I had Kevin White ranked lower than any other fantasy analyst for years. And I've been proven right. And a lot of people know that I coined the term bad Michael Thomas and good Michael Thomas. What people don't know is how early I walked back the bad Michael Thomas moniker. As soon as Michael Thomas was drafted by the Saints, we dropped the bad from bad Michael Thomas. And I want to make something official on the Sonic Truth airwaves right now. I am retiring the bad Michael Thomas label. He's now just Michael Thomas because you can no longer call the Saints number three receiver bad. You can't do that. Why? Because even if you're Ben Watson, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're 10 years past your prime. Drew Brees will make you relevant. Even if you're overrated, Drew Brees will prop you up to ensure that the who was once overrated is now rated properly, Drew Brees makes that happen. Drew Brees is the breeze that powers all boats. <laughs> that was the ideal landing spot. It's interesting when you look at Josh Doxson going to Washington or you look at Tyler Boyd fitting the needs of Cincinnati perfectly opposite A.J. Green. There's a lot of wide receivers in this class that went to the best possible wide receiver core where their profile and their skill sets matched perfectly with the needs of the receiving core perfectly filling the needs where there were deficiencies on the wide receiver depth chart you see a guy like bad michael thomas that's exactly what new orleans needed they have the outside stretch x receiver in brandon cooks the guy that can do it all the guy that can play all the positions just like josh doxson brandon cooks is your all-purpose number one x receiver Du jour. You have your flanker in Willie Sneed, the guy that can run those intermediate routes and is your chain mover, guy you can rely on, great hands, super reliable. I said reliable twice. I get it. I'm sorry. But what did they not have? They didn't have a slot guy. They didn't have an underneath receiver other than Willie Sneed. They really needed that. They also needed a taller receiver in the red zone to run some of those red zone fades. They didn't have that either. You could say, well, they had Brandon Coleman. Brandon Coleman is a scarecrow. Don't give me Brandon <laughs> Coleman. Brandon Coleman was a giant, unproductive wide receiver at the college level. No burst, no agility, very little production. That is a scarecrow. And at 6'6", 220, if those are your measurables, and 
you completely underwhelmed at the college level, then you're a scarecrow. Like that's what you are. They were playing a scarecrow at number three receiver. And in bad Michael Thomas, who's now just Michael Thomas, they now have a significant upgrade over Brandon Coleman. And if you look at the bad Michael Thomas, I keep saying bad Michael Thomas. I'm sorry. I'm apologizing to you, Michael Thomas from Ohio State. See that? I got it right that time. His workout metrics don't look like an X receiver. He's not an X receiver. We talked about how he was being compared by people like Matt Miller from Bleacher Report to Des Bryant, these absurd comps that you see heading into the draft. He looks nothing like Des Bryant because Des Bryant and Allen Robinson, those kinds of X receivers, they were mega producers at the college level. And they have more burst than Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas's workout metrics look like a slot receiver's workout metrics because his best trait is his lateral agility. 1093 79th percentile agility score for Michael Thomas was above average for any given receiver. But for a guy that's 6'3", 212, exceptional size adjusted agility. And if you just superimposed Michael Thomas's workout metrics against other receivers, the receivers he compares most closely to in terms of the workout metric ratios, where's your 40 time in relation to your burst score in relation to your agility score? Mike Thomas looks like Doug Baldwin, looks like Justin Hardy, looks like Michael Campanaro. Those are slot receivers at the NFL level. Now make Doug Baldwin 6'3", 212. That's Michael Thomas. Now put him on the Saints in a high-volume offense for a team that doesn't have a slot receiver of consequence right now. That's what we call a perfect fit. Michael Thomas was the perfect fit for the New Orleans Saints. And Martavis Bryant was the perfect fit for the Pittsburgh Steelers. But before his year-long suspension was announced, I talked to Patrick Doherty about Martavis Bryant's floor, the lowest floor of any fantasy player. Martavis Bryant's ceiling is super high. I agree with you 100%, but I think his floor is super low, and I'm really concerned that Martavis Bryant's floor is actually a trap door, and it's much lower than we think. There's a basement under there, and we don't even know it's there. <laughs> it's not a horrible opinion, especially because receiver is so deep. I mean, it's not like he's at the top of like a really thin position. So I mean, if you're worried about Martavis Bryant, there's lots of uh, great plan Bs. So, yeah, I mean... I can't completely sign off on your fear, but I can't completely dismiss it either. Now, I'm not a Sammy Coates advocate by any stretch, but Sammy Coates does have some Martavis Bryant-like qualities. So there's the additional risk that there is a redundant asset already on the depth chart just to add a little more risky business into my equation. Yes, I'm going to add a pinch of the... Sammy Coates in there. Are you convinced yet, Patrick Doherty, of the riskiness of Martavis Bryant? And we can never forget the numerous fantasy experts that had Doriel Green Beckham ranked ahead of Amari Cooper heading into the 2015 season. Many fantasy analysts are assuming Doriel Green Beckham will ascend to the number one wide receiver chair and be a top 24 receiver in the league this year. His time is now. What do you think about Doriel Green Beckham? Yeah, I'm a fan of Doriel Green Beckham and his talent. I, I do recognize that 
going into the offseason, his floor was a little lower than what his, you know, his price was. He was going in, you know, the early fifth round, mid fifth round of uh, redraft leagues. I think that that has been tempered a bit and that's definitely helped uh, with his price. I think he's a lot more palatable as a seventh round pick guy you're drafting as your wide receiver three, maybe wide receiver four. So I, I think that he has just the type of upside that you want at that point in the draft. And the, you know, his floor isn't going to kill you if he ends up being, you know, not this great uh, prospect that we thought he was coming out of college and what we saw uh, in limited action during his rookie season. So I'm a fan of Doral Green Beckham. He's one of the guys who I think that will have a, a big breakout this season. And I think that he is definitely has a, a solid price in redraft right now. Doral Green Beckham is a total enigma to me because he didn't play in his final college season. He was suspended. So we never got to see what he would have done in his final year at Missouri. What we do know is in his sophomore year at Missouri, he posted a 31.8% dominator rating. That's 55th percentile. 15.0 college yards per reception, 55th percentile. Breakout age, 20.0, 50th percentile. And then you look across the board at his workout metrics from his 40 time of 449, his burst score 116.5, that's 25th percentile. So this isn't a player that checks all the boxes. He's perceived to be a size speed specimen that checks all the boxes, just oozing with talent. I'm not so sure. For a player to capture my imagination, he needs to look a lot closer to Amari Cooper than he does Doro Green Beckham. I need to see college dominance. I need to see upper percentile workout metrics. I'm not seeing any of that with Doro Green Beckham. But the case for Doro Green Beckham was, well, don't worry about any of that. He's 6'5", 237, and he ran a 449. That comes out to a 123.0, 98th percentile height adjusted speed score. He ran track at 237 pounds. Like Derrick Henry, he is potentially a generational size speed specimen, unlike anyone we've ever seen. Have faith, the production will come. That's what I hear about Doro Green Beckham. Have faith, the production will come. But the production wasn't exactly there at Missouri. And the production wasn't there in his first year in Tennessee either. He barely crested 500 yards on a team that didn't have much in the receiving court. He was competing with Justin Hunter for snaps, for Christ's sake. And then you go out and log 32 receptions. He had an average production premium, an average target premium, an average yards per target across the board. This guy is average with the exception of his size. Everything else about him is average, but there's one thing that's most concerning that's well below average. His catch rate last year, 47.8, that was outside the top 100 wide receivers in 2015. However, his contested catch rate was 90.9%, number one in the league. This is why he's an enigma. If it's a challenging ball, he will convert the catch. If it's not that challenging, he will most likely not convert the catch. I mean, this is like the outer bounds outcome for Mike Evans. If you just turned up all the dials on the Mike Evans, you would get Doro Green Beckham top of the league in one metric and bottom of the league in another. He is a human paradox. And because I don't understand what he is, he's the most difficult player for me to project, and I'm absolutely not investing in him in any format. And what other high-profile wide receivers were we quote-unquote fading in 2016? 
And Kelvin Benjamin is a notoriously inefficient wide receiver whose fantasy output was buoyed by huge volume in his rookie season. But I'm not worried about the inefficiency with Kelvin Benjamin. I'm worried about the injury because you just do not see 6'5", 245-pound players playing wide receiver. More often than not, those players get converted to tight end. And so the stress of playing an outside receiver position on that body is worrisome. And what happened last year? He tore his ACL in training camp. Of all the players in the NFL that I would imagine would get injured, it would be Kelvin Benjamin because he's disproportionately large for a wide receiver, just like Greg Oden was disproportionately large both in girth and height for an NBA player. That's amazing to say, right? Like Yao Ming, that someone could be a disproportionately large basketball player, but that's what Greg Oden was. And it wasn't surprising when Greg Oden was consistently nursing knee, ankle, and foot injuries. And I worry that that's going to be the case with Kelvin Benjamin throughout his career. He may be the Greg Oden of the NFL. All right, enough negative sentiments about wide receivers. Let's focus on the positive, the deep sleepers that we hit home runs on in 2016. Now, if you're going to look deeper on the San Diego roster, the other receiver that is mildly interesting is Tyrell Williams because Tyrell Williams has a 117.0, 82nd percentile SparkX score on playerprofiler.com. He is an exciting talent. He has the size, 6'3", 204, the 98th percentile catch radius, except He wasn't productive enough. At Western Oregon, he only posted a 30.5% college dominator. So historically, he's underperformed his athleticism, but his college yards per reception was 17.0. And if something happens to any of these receivers, he'll come in and be that field stretcher, someone you might want to play if you can make free agent pickups. Tyrell Williams might be a guy you pick up at some point during the 2016 season. But there is a receiver on that depth chart, not named Marcus Wilson, that I am more interested in than Eddie Royal. It's Cameron Meredith. Because Cameron Meredith is 6'3", 200 pounds, and he has nice workout metrics. 129.8 burst score, 1083 agility score, catch radius of 1032, 95th percentile. Good spark X score, great catch radius. And at the college level, he wasn't a big producer at a small school, Illinois State. But that's because he was a converted basketball player. We talk about the converted basketball players at the tight end position. We rarely talk about the converted basketball players at the wide receiver position. But the basketball players on most campuses are the best athletes, not the football players. So once Cameron Meredith became acclimated to the position, he started improving. And he improved so much that the Bears decided to sign him. And they've had him on the practice squad. And then last year, they promoted him to the active roster. He's been developing slowly, but there's a narrative to be told as to why he was never a big college producer, why he hasn't broken out yet. And he has those athletic measurables. He's one of those deep, 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 He's so deep, he's laying at the bottom of Mariana's Trench. He's as far below the surface as any player could possibly be. That's Cameron Meredith, but I like him. I'm allowed to like him. 
I'm allowed to find a player in the depths of the sleeper depths and like him. I'm allowed to do that. Are you going to take that away from me? How the fuck did I know about Cameron Meredith in August of 2016? I have no idea. Okay, let's get back to me sounding ridiculous. So when people look at seniors who have really gaudy numbers, it's very difficult not to like that. It's very difficult not to like that just because, you know, we're sort of wired that way and because we want to give people credit for coming back and making themselves better. There's a very strong narrative pull to this thing of someone, you know, realizing they needed to stay in school and then benefiting from that. And it's not that we shouldn't give them credit for that and that they're not draftable because they are. You know, someone like Sterling Shepard, who's had a great senior year, I mean, he's very definitely draftable. It's just a matter of, of where you want to do that. You know, the problem with someone who comes back as a senior and has a huge season is simply that at that point you're playing against players you should be able to easily beat. And so when you're playing against people you're older than and have more experience than, you know, if you don't absolutely destroy them, then your chances of being able to be successful against NFL players are very small. We see this in the NBA all the time, and it's now an accepted truth that you essentially can't draft a senior. No one would do that. You want to draft the Andrew Wiggins after their freshman year because they're still early in their development cycle and then start looking at their trajectory and then make a projection. If you grab a guy as a senior, big deal. He beat a bunch of guys who were freshmen and sophomores, and his abilities will be capped at the NBA level. And you see this over and over and over and over again at the NBA level. And we see it also at the NFL level, but there's this cognitive dissonance that no one wants to acknowledge that. And that's part of my frustration with the analysis I'm reading about Sterling Shepard, where he's get, like you said, he's getting credit for things that you should just do. One of the things with the NBA that people, you know, get offended by as well is that sometimes you see people drafted and drafted extremely early who were actually not good. And so there's a big difference between drafting someone who's young and athletic but doesn't have production, which can get you into big trouble, versus drafting someone who's young and very productive and maybe either they're not quite as athletic. One of the things that I think is kind of interesting is that at this point, you know, you have all of these things around Antonio Brown. And people look at him as proof of this and proof of that, or, you know, maybe he's this huge outlier. And, you know, obviously you shouldn't expect anyone of sort of his size and athleticism and where he's drafted to go and become the best receiver in the NFL. I mean, that is, is wildly unlikely. But the idea that he wasn't even a good draft prospect is probably not the case. I mean, he's a guy who had over a thousand yards as a, as a freshman, in college that's right. that's right and had 72 carries in college you know 530 rushing yards in college so again all of these things that you would want to see from a prospect who's going to go and not necessarily perform at the level that he's performed at but be a very good nfl player those things were there and so the fact that he dropped so far in the draft that didn't have to do with the fact that he wasn't a good prospect it had to do with the fact that there's this huge inefficiency in the way people look at wide receiver prospects. NFL scouts were focusing on the wrong sorts of details, and that's why you're on the show. That's why we're talking today, so that fantasy gamers can start to focus on the right details even when the NFL scouts are focusing on the wrong details. Also, Sean, I have a new comp for Sterling Shepard. Are you ready for it? Okay. Shabazz Napier. <laughs> that sounds good to me. 
Shabazz Napier, senior guard from Connecticut, led them to a national championship, was the most polished guard in the NCAA tournament, went to the NBA, and was completely outmatched. My wife is not drafting Odell Beckham Jr. in fantasy football this year. I asked her about it. Honey, would you draft Odell Beckham Jr. if you were playing fantasy football this year? And she said, who's Odell Beckham Jr.? I said, he's the New York Giants wide receiver who's now linked to a Kardashian. I'm not sure which one, the tall one. And she said, <gasps> ooh, ooh, uh, that was the sound that came out of her body i was horrified what what was that noise she said you don't want any part of any man linked to a kardashian the kardashian curse is real they are the destroyers of young men that's right they are it's a venus flytrap and the siren song of the Kardashian fame can woo people that are already famous. That's the amazing thing about it. You know that linking up with a Kardashian is going to turn your life upside down. Even someone like Kanye West, who was already at the heights of fame, the most famous hip-hop artist at the time he started dating Kim Kardashian. If anyone would be immune to the Kardashian effect, it would be Kanye West. But now Kanye West, he's deciding that he's going to do a pop-up show in New York and cause a riot. I think I saw a car flipped over and on fire. He's not thinking clearly. Ever since he started dating a Kardashian, Kanye West has had the mental stability of Bobby Fischer. But let's talk specifically about athletes. Let's put the rock stars and the hip-hop stars off to the side. Focus just on the athletes. How many athletes improved professionally after dating a Kardashian? Let's start with Reggie Bush. What were Reggie Bush's splits with and without a Kardashian in his life? We heard from Jacob Rickroad on Twitter. You can follow him at Clutch Fantasy. He writes... Reggie Bush missed 10 games over two seasons in 2007 and 2008 while dating Kim Kardashian. Uh-oh. When Reggie Bush was dating a Kardashian, he was a one-dimensional satellite back that was used sparingly. Post-Kardashian, he became the every-down workhorse for the Miami Dolphins. How about the basketball player Chris Humphreys? Where does he play now? That's what I thought. I mean, Lamar Odom almost died after being ensnared in this swirl that is the Kardashian alternate reality. So yes, I am very concerned about Odell Beckham Jr. in fantasy football. And you can see exactly how concerned I am by going to playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings and checking out my seasonal wide receiver rankings. I'm not as worried about Odell Beckham Jr. in Dynasty because typically when you date a Kardashian, it lasts less than a year. But in 2016, while he is dating a Kardashian, I think it's Khloe Kardashian, that's the year in which a Kardashian could have a negative impact on Odell Beckham Jr.'s fantasy output. Yes, it's true. This is a metrics-based show. Roto Underworld Radio was created to talk about all of the advanced metrics available on playerprofiler.com. That is the focus of the show, our numbers, metrics, an evidence-based process to everything. 
debunking the narratives that plague sports. Oh, but there's some exceptions. You have to make some narrative exceptions once in a while. And one of the narratives that I will heed is the Kardashian narrative because it's just so powerful. That family is such a corrosive force that we must pay attention to it. We can't ignore it. I can't. So let me get this straight. We should be paying attention to who Odell Beckham Jr. is dating, but we shouldn't pay attention to the fact that Allen Robinson's quarterback is an abomination, and we deserve to be subjected to a sermon about the definition of the word regression and how many fantasy analysts don't know what it means? (laughs) I am bad at this. So bad. I'm the worst. It's very difficult to decide between Allen Robinson and A.J. Green. In fact, I'm hedging. I'm drafting Allen Robinson in best ball leagues because he's capable of these 40-point weeks. He led the NFL last year in touchdowns with 14, as well as receptions of 20 yards or more with 31. He led the league in big plays by a wide receiver last year by a significant margin. He's the definition of a big play wide receiver, and for that reason, I like him more than A.J. Green in best ball, but in traditional leagues, I'd rather go with A.J. Green. If I have to set my lineup every week... I'd rather have A.J. Green. There's a safety in knowing what you're getting with A.J. Green. Because A.J. Green is the only wide receiver in the NFL with more than two seasons of experience who has posted a top 24 fantasy wide receiver season each and every year he's been in the league. I mean, that would be my argument for why A.J. Green is the best receiver. I mean, it is an argument. I think it's Antonio Brown. Someone else could say it's Julio Jones. And I think there's also an argument for why it might be A.J. Green. And I think after this season, there will be arguments as to why it might be Allen Robinson. Because Allen Robinson is the future of the position. A number of members of the 2014 rookie wide receiver class are now going into their third year. And they are the future of the NFL, of the wide receiver position. The future is here. Offense is underperformed on average in 2015, as I mentioned earlier. Oh, but I heard Allen Robinson is destined for a major regression in 2016. Yeah, yeah. He's not going to regress. I've said this already on multiple shows. The people on Twitter don't know what the word regress means. Just send them a link to dictionary.com forward slash regress when you read that on social media because it doesn't make sense because the people saying that Allen Robinson is going to regress are using the word regress incorrectly. They're saying he's going to underperform expectations. That's not what regress means. Regress means to revert back to a mean. And if you go back all the way to Allen Robinson's sophomore season at Penn State, he's only been dominant. That's all he's ever been. Even in his rookie year, he posted a 15% hog rate on playerprofiler.com. That's targets per snap. That was top 15 in the NFL. Even as a rookie, pre-injury, he was top 15 in hog rate. So he has always been a dominant target hog going all the way back to his sophomore season at Penn State. So you got me. He will regress in 2016. He'll regress from excellent to terrific. You got me, everybody. Regress. 
That is unless Jacksonville suddenly acquires a top five defense in the league and a highly efficient run game. I believe their run game will improve incrementally. I believe their defense is going to improve incrementally, but they're not going to suddenly become the Seattle Seahawks of 2014. No, there will be plenty of pass volume in Jacksonville in 2016 to sustain Allen Robinson as a WR1 in fantasy. No! Okay, maybe we had better luck with the tight end position. No, we didn't. We won some, we lost some. And what's even more amusing is the most overrated player on the Colts offense is the one who's rising on the draft boards the most, and that's Dwayne Allen. Dwayne Allen, a player with 500 yards the last three seasons. <laughs> In the one year that Dwayne Allen started all 16 games, he capped out at 500 yards and three touchdowns. If anyone is going to get the least from his opportunity, it is Dwayne Allen. I should create a nickname for Dwayne Allen, the great minimizer. How to get the least out of the most. And I'm talking about opportunity as the starting tight end on an Andrew Luck offense. 500 yards and three touchdowns. <laughs> Why is that? Well, because he wasn't particularly productive in college. He didn't even reach the 20% college dominator threshold. College yards per reception, 12.0. Breakout age in college, 21.5, 39th percentile. Runs a 4.940. Has no burst, a tiny catch radius, and average agility. His best comparable player on playerprofiler.com is none other than Mikel Rivera, and that's a close comparison because he is Mikel Rivera. And yet so many generic fantasy analysts are touting Dwayne Allen as a sleeper, as your late-round tight end target du jour. And I'm sitting here going, what? He's the guy? There's not one shred of evidence on the Dwayne Allen profile that he's a good player in the passing game. He may very well be a good blocker. And that's fine. There's a role for good run-blocking tight ends in the NFL, but not in fantasy. This is a fantasy football discussion. And I don't see how Dwayne Allen could justify a top 12 tight end ADP. It's absurd. But this is what Ryan Grigson does. He forgoes good players for bad players. Exhibit A, keeps Dwayne Allen, lets Kobe Fleener go. And I like Kobe Fleener in a vacuum better than Dwayne Allen. So if I had to choose, if I was an NFL general manager, I would choose Kobe Fleener over Dwayne Allen. I don't think it's close, and yet Ryan Grigson made the opposite decision. This is why I believe Ryan Grigson's not a good general manager. I'm also excited looking at him. Have you seen this guy? I mean, his yeah, blue I mean, eyes are the same exact shade as the blue Colts jersey, and the hair is flowing, and his uh, smile, and he could be a surfer. I was watching a documentary about surfing Mavericks off of San Francisco. I thought I saw Kobe Fleener three times during that documentary. Yeah, point break Fleener. We got him. Lock him up. <laughs> there he is. Point break Fleener. That's it. <laughs> Are you recycling that nickname, or did you just... No, no. It was year I just rolled it into your surfer take. Yeah, we did it. New nickname. We did it on the show, Football Diehards Podcast. Matt <laughs> Kelly and Rich Rebar created a new nickname. Love it. Okay, 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 okay. Having Kobe Fleener among my top 10 tight ends, thankfully not top five, 
was a mistake, but maybe I had a perfect track record analyzing coaches and GMs. With Ryan Grigson, if it looks like a meathead, if it drafts like a meathead, if it signs free agents like a meathead, then it's a meathead. And I'm not sorry about calling Ryan Grigson a meathead because it's obvious that he's running his team as if a meathead is running it, which means he's a meathead because he's the one running it. Did that make sense? What I just said? <laughs> just, I was at a delayed processing what I just said. I like, Did that make sense? But I want to be clear, my criticism of Ryan Grigson has always been of Ryan Grigson, the real-life GM, not the fantasy GM. When I criticize Ryan Grigson, I'm not talking about Ryan Grigson from a fantasy football context. Ryan Grigson is good for fantasy football, at least. He's just bad for fans of the Colts because he runs the Colts like a fantasy team. That's the problem. Going into the 2015 draft, Ryan Grigson needed offensive line help. He needed defensive line help. But he said, fuck it. Let's draft a wide receiver who runs a 4-3-3 but never reached 1,000 receiving yards in college. Party! woo Hail Mary on every play! No. The last player in the draft they needed was Philip Dorsett in 2015, and they drafted Philip Dorsett in the first round! We talk all the time on this show about not judging people based on one mistake, but sometimes that one mistake is a window into a flawed process. And the Philip Dorsett draft pick was a window into a flawed roster construction and player evaluation process present in the Colts front office, led by Ryan Grigson. So of all the singular events in Colts player personnel history, the Philip Dorsett draft pick was impactful. It was illuminating, but it was also good for Andrew Luck's fantasy owners. The Philip Dorsett pick was good for Andrew Luck's fantasy owners and literally no one else that cares about football. How much do you believe Jim Bob Cooter contributed to the Lions offense having a resurgence in the second half? Well, I think whenever you give someone a team like they gave him, I think it's a surprise element where it's like you look at Mark Trustman when he came to the Bears. This is the offense was great the first year. You look at uh, Chip Kelly the first year he went to Philly. The offense was great there. Jim Bob Cooter took over the offense. And yes, it's going to work for a while. Teams that have no film on it. They have no idea how to adjust for your game plan. It also doesn't hurt that the schedule was so good in the second half of the season. They had the Raiders, the Eagles, the Rams, the Saints, 49ers, and Bears. And that's just from week 11 on. So I think that you could have thrown for two touchdowns a game against those defenses. And maybe even three if it were the Saints. I, I, I don't know. It's just I'm not buying what the Lions are doing without Calvin Johnson at all. Thank you. Mike has not heard the first part of the show, so he has no idea that the whole purpose of the first part of the show was meant to eviscerate the worshipers that are now stationed on their knees around Jim Bob Cooter, so I couldn't have asked for a better response than that. I hope Jim Bob Cooter sent a really nice Christmas gift to the schedule maker in the NFL last season. I believe it'll be very difficult for Adam Gaze to ever reach Jay Gruden's level as God a head coach it. because what Jay Gruden did in Washington last season, ousting Robert Griffin III and installing the douche-faced Kirk Cousins, a quarterback that 
literally no one but him believed would ever become an above-average NFL starting quarterback. Only Jay Gruden believed that. It was one person on planet Earth, and he believed it so strongly that he approached the owner whose office is decorated exclusively with Robert Griffin memorabilia and said, I understand, Dan, that you love this man, that you worship this player. He's your favorite player in the history of football. He's your shiny object. But I need you to give me permission to banish him and start Kirk Cousins in week one. Not even give Robert Griffin a chance to fail in week one. Just outright bench him in the preseason and install Kirk Cousins in week one. That was leadership. That's what we ask our leaders to do, to make the hard decisions, the counterintuitive tactics that roils the media, that enrages the fan base. You do it anyway because it helps your team. And that's what Jay Gruden did. And I think Jay Gruden is one of the best coaches in the league because of that singular decision. His Machiavellian scheme to oust Robert Griffin III was the most incredible coaching feat of 2015, and nobody talks about it. And the reason nobody talks about it may be because a couple months later, a video surfaced of Deshaun Jackson pinching Jay Gruden's nipples. Jay Gruden then shrieked and jumped back. Deshaun Jackson cackled with laughter. And at that point, any visions that any members of the media or fans had of Jay Gruden, leader of men, vanished. Now may I have a drum roll, please. This was the hottest, most insane take of 2016. Zero people agreed that Martellus Bennett will be a Patriot longer than Rob Gronkowski. This was the craziest of crazy takes. Crazy like a fox. So we got a buzzard email, Matt. Uh-oh. I don't know if this will calm you down or fire you up even more. Oh, no. Um, this is in regards to something that was said last week on the show. And here's how it reads. You can contact the show on Twitter at SonicTruthPod. You can find us at our email at gmail.com. Here's how the buzzard letter goes. Wayne or Dwayne, great topic last week. Here's a question for you, though, Matt. Rob Gronkowski, is he a Wayne or is he a Dwayne? Ooh. 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 Do we have any Sonic Truth t-shirts? I guess we could. I could hand make one. I could sketch one. This buzzer deserves a Sonic Truth t-shirt. That is the best question we've received in the history of the show. And it makes perfect sense that I'm the one that wrote it. I was going to ask for your home address to send you that t-shirt. Rob Gronkowski, is he a Wayne or is he a Dwayne? On the last show, we talked about how players age and how players take care of their bodies. You could be like Dwayne Bow, or you could be like Reggie Wayne. Play until you're 36 and be productive. Play until you're 29 and flame out. You decide. The wide receiver does get to decide that. They can decide to go to Larry Fitzgerald's wide receiver camps every offseason, or they can sit at the house and play video games. It's their decision. But if they're sitting at the house and playing video games all offseason, they won't be in the league at age 33. That's a Dwayne. And Rob Gronkowski is absolutely a Dwayne. Think about it objectively. What is Rob Gronkowski all about? Rob Gronkowski is all about having a good time. That's what Dwaynes are all about. Having a good time. And when it's convenient, I'll practice football if I can fit it in. 
I can't practice tomorrow. I have a party cruise scheduled with my brothers. But maybe when I get back. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to wake up in the morning at 6.30 and do crunches before I start drinking. In fact, I'll have a screwdriver while I'm doing push-ups. <laughs> In Vegas. That's what I'll do. I'll order room service. Rob Gronkowski has said something to this effect, that he likes to drink vodka with water because it allows him to get drunk and stay hydrated. He said that out loud with no sense of irony. Any other player says this, warning bells go off across football and in the Dynasty League community. But not this case. No. Look at Rob Gronkowski next to Austin Safarian Jenkins. Austin Safarian Jenkins walks off the field frustrated during a voluntary minicamp practice, and he is belittled on social media. Rob Gronkowski posts a video on his own Instagram where he's surrounded by strippers pouring bottles of vodka in his mouth while he's holding sparklers. <laughs> and that's just a Tuesday for Rob Gronkowski. No one thinks anything of it. How has Rob Gronkowski carved out this space for himself? I can only imagine what Josh Gordon or Justin Blackman or Austin Safarian Jenkins are thinking when they're sitting at home watching Rob Gronkowski's antics. Because it's not going to last forever. It never does. We all know a Rob Gronkowski. The guy you go to Vegas with who's up at 6.30 eating breakfast as if he didn't drink a drop the night before. Everyone has that bulletproof friend who seems indestructible, who can drink everyone else under the table, can put any substance in their body and bounce back the next day like clockwork. The people around Rob Gronkowski see him as that guy. We all know that guy. We've all been to Vegas with that guy. That guy is awesome. Who doesn't love that guy? I love that guy. I love Rob Gronkowski. I own a Rob Gronkowski jersey. My daughter's favorite player is Rob Gronkowski. Rob Gronkowski is one of my favorite players. But I'm also objective. I'm also a realist. And I've also seen how substance abuse can lay even the superstar of the superstars low. Rock stars. The immortal rock gods. Drinking a handle of Jack Daniels a night and thinking nothing of it. The athletes like Rob Gronkowski drinking vodka and water to stay hydrated. This can continue for years, but it can't continue forever. And nobody knows when the person will cross the Rubicon. Justin Blackman crossed it at age 24. Keith Richards has crossed it multiple times and decided, I'm fine with it. I'm just going to keep crossing it. It's inevitable. What you're looking at with Rob Gronkowski is inevitability. No one with this lifestyle comes out on the other end unscathed. Drugs and alcohol are undefeated in the course of human history. And not even the mythical Rob Gronkowski vodka centaur is going to beat the odds. Three years from now, on the New England Patriots roster, what do you foresee at the tight end position? I don't see Rob Gronkowski on the team. Wait, what? I believe at some point in the next three years, 
The Rob Gronkowski party bus is going to crash. And I do not know how severe the incident will be. What I do know is so far, Rob Gronkowski has suffered a strained hip, a fractured forearm, twice a herniated disc that required lumbar disectomy and cost him seven games, a strained hamstring, a torn ACL and MCL, perpetual knee soreness, and then another major knee sprain last season. And he's only 27. And he's responded to that medical history by jumping up and down on stage with Daft Punk downing bottles of vodka. On the other hand, Martellus Bennett, who is two years older than Rob Gronkowski, has been the anti-Rob Gronkowski off the field. In the last four seasons, Martellus Bennett has experienced fractured ribs, a quadriceps sprain, and a knee sprain. So his medical history is relatively clean. Rob Gronkowski's is a minefield. Martellus Bennett has no off-the-field incidents on his resume and is known to be gregarious with an exceptional work ethic. He and his brother working out all the time off the field when they're not at charity events. That's who Martellus Bennett is off the field. Very different players. Yet most people look at Martellus Bennett and they see an aging tight end with a couple good years left and they see Rob Gronkowski as the best tight end of all time at the peak of his powers. I don't see it that way necessarily. I see Martellus Bennett aging gracefully, and I see Rob Gronkowski crashing. In three years, I believe the starting tight end for the New England Patriots will not be Rob Gronkowski. He will be out of the league. It will be Martellus Bennett. Adjectives, the things most adults take for granted. But for your child, a lifetime of backstroking through the fountain of knowledge begins in one place, the home. And the dish ran away with the pocket presents. Look at me. I'm reading, Mommy. I've never been more proud of you, my little angel. As early as three months old, a child begins absorbing language. Now, some pediatricians might say it's imperative the parent owns that responsibility. But come on, you're freaking busy. Netflix, Daily Fantasy Sports, sweeping up the pieces of that broken marriage, it all takes too much time. But that's where we come in. Introducing Scout and Speak. Great zone blocking, downhill run, sluggish with his cut, a violent runner. He often gets too cute. Great job, honey! I guess I never realized Derrick Henry's footwork was a possible pitfall. He's Brandon Jacobs 2.0. Jesus, better call the guys in my league about this. She sounds so convincing, yet somewhat non-committal. With the Scout and Speak Home Learning System, your child doesn't just learn to read, but they also learn the time-honored skill of placing fault on young athletes in a way that resembles a snake eating its own contradictory tail, or as we call it, scouting speak he's a long body length player who can drop his hips surprisingly well he's stiff in and out of his breaks i'd probably still give up the 212 for him in a startup i know that's bullshit but call the farmer in the dell because this goat is coming home with me sarah come here 
He's doing his first Dynasty podcast. Look at our baby's Martavis Bryant takes. It feels like only yesterday that he grinded his first tape. He's reading and he's evaluating. We need to cherish this. Should we sign him up for Pee Wee football? <laughs> Let's not get crazy. And coming soon from the makers of Scout and Speak, Coach and Speak. Our guys left it all out on the field today, but we need to be more consistent. Our only focus now is our next opponent. 